0: Hello, I'm Mike, and this is Vince. Hello. And this is Through the Looking Glass, a podcast where we dissect the relationship between the emotional happenings of history and their portrayals on the big screen. So before we start, Vince, I just want to ask you a question. Why do we What's like up? historical movies?
1: Um, because Colin Firth looks very good in a tight suit. <laughs> um, I, I
0: guess I wouldn't dispute that. He does have a regal appearance.
1: Um, any other reasons you can think of? Plenty. Uh, (laughs) historical movies give us a unique opportunity to transport ourselves back in time emotionally, uh, to when those films are set. So something like, um, all of the Victorian England movies, um, we can see the way people lived, um, and we can feel the events That happened then, and understand their significance uh, without being buried in a book.
0: Absolutely. It's funny when you said all those Victorian England films. It felt like you were trying to come up with a list in your head to go off of, and I was trying myself, and like you, I could not think of any. I'm sure they're out there,
1: but... But there's a lot of Victorian England films.
0: Yeah, there are.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Which means we have a lot of material to get through. (laughs) Oh, boy. (laughs)
0: Um, but absolutely. And also, you know, I think that movies with the historical setting, they're enticing and they can sometimes yield certain insights that other historical methods can't. Um, particularly what you mentioned being the emotional aspect, right? Um, you can go through and you can read primary documents and newspapers about the American revolution, but gosh, darn it. Seeing Mel Gibson up on the screen, just hatching away at redcoats you just can't get that in those papers right
1: <laughs> that was not the mill gibbs movie i thought you were going to but i'll take it <laughs> which one i thought you were going for braveheart oh well
0: hmm. not redcoats but englishmen so it still works yeah uh but more importantly these movies they translate those insights uh those emotional aspects and they can make them into something easily digestible for the audience Unfortunately, as we are all very much aware, the downsides are that things get too watered down or simplified, and a lot of beats are just missed. Um, How many times have we watched a historical film and you heard somebody afterwards say, wow, I didn't know things were really like that
1: back then? Yeah, or saying things like, I didn't know that happened, when what they are referring to did not in fact happen but that's another matter. Absolutely. Um, And there
0: was, uh, there's a quote. I did a little bit of research, obviously, uh, before the podcast. And it was by Paul B. Weinstein. And this is from the history teacher, volume 35, number one. And he said that filmmakers must juggle their artistic sensibilities and desire for historical accuracy with the requirements of the marketplace, the expectations and values of the audience and legal and social realities. And I think this is a great quote because essentially it's what I think this podcast wants to explore, right? Right, exactly. We are not going to tell you the true story that actually happened because anybody can go online and find out the accuracy of these movies. But instead, we want to kind of have a conversation about, well, why were these changes made? What are the results? Does it work? Does it not work? Et et cetera.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So what are we talking about first?
0: Uh, Well, today we are examining the Tom Hooper classic uh, 2010 uh, best picture film, The King's Speech.
1: Delightful. So I remember when The King's Speech won best picture. Mm -hmm. uh, I hadn't seen it before, Mm -hmm. um, but I remember being slightly annoyed that another period piece uh, took the, the top top prize.
0: I I'm actually with you there, uh, 2010, 10 years ago. Wow. Just geez. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I remember everybody loving this film. I remember my mom really loved the movie and I just remember I loved history. Obviously at that point, history is my life. Um, part of it at least, but as, uh, it's another boring English film about, you know, stuffy rich people. Like what's the interest in it? You know? And I was younger at that point, um, but I then I sat down and watched it, and I don't think I fully appreciated it at the time, but I definitely saw the appeal, and I, saw, mm-hmm. I think I saw why it won Best Picture. Well, now that we've gotten our introduction out of the way, I think we can just kind of dive right into talking about the movie, right?
1: Yes, definitely. All right. So, at its face, what did you think of The King's Speech as a film?
0: As a film, I... I was mentioning this to you before. I thought it was a, um, I think it played things pretty safe. You know, it, mm-hmm. it seemed quiet, but it wasn't trying to be with its messages and its messages weren't particularly controversial or anything new. Right. I mean, I think at its base, it's about you know, King George, the Sixth, birdie, um, his friendship with Lionel Logue, his speech therapist. And, Lionel kind of giving this voiceless king um, a voice, right? Helping right. him find his courage. I think it's enticing enough, but I, I think that the main beats of it aren't what really draws people in. I think it is honestly the amazing chemistry between Colin Firth and Jeffrey
1: Rush. Yeah. Uh, honestly, those two carried the entire movie 100% of the way. Yeah. So, looking at Basically, every element besides Colin Firth and Jeffrey Rush, Mm -hmm. this movie does not have a lot working for it. Oh, okay. So, when it comes to visual storytelling, there is no cohesion to the color palette, to the shots. Mm -hmm. The the cuts happen for no reason at all. Um, And... The worst offense is we see a a film school level application of the rule of thirds. (laughs) Everyone in almost every shot is either in the left third or the right third of the image. Mm -hmm. And I I noticed this very early on and it got real distracting.
0: I I wasn't sure if there was a point to it when I first rewatched it. And I think you're right. I think if it was just George or Birdie, if he was the only one that was kind of off center, right. then I guess there would have been a point to it. But I don't really think it it served a larger purpose other than
1: being, I guess, visually off to people. Right. And I I think the big offense to that is that films have a sort of a toolkit. Um, There's uh, a mutually understood vocabulary of the screen that audiences understand without thinking about it, Mm -hmm. and filmmakers typically know to employ. Mm -hmm. Things like your size on the screen indicating your power or importance in the scene. There's a great shot in Citizen Kane where we're looking through a window at... uh, the main character, playing in the snow, mm-hmm. and then it pans back into his house, where then we see his mother on the screen, and then we see his father standing right in front of the camera. And that, in the in the background, we still see Citizen Kane, uh, very small, mm-hmm. and showing how he has no say in the events that are going on. Yeah. In this movie, we see the red light of uh, microphones mm-hmm. blinking and staying on. Mm-hmm. And there's even a line where Jeffrey Rush says, "We don't want that evil eye." If they would have done something with that, if that yeah. was imposing, or if it was, you know, if there's a shot of it centered, I, if there, I, I want more there.
0: Yeah, something a bit more developed. Other than I think I only noticed it like two or three times throughout the film. Right. It just it seemed like a light, and I think. Um, The one thing I did notice, um, I personally thought it was well done uh, in the couple of scenes that they did it, but uh, in the beginning, 1925 Wembley Stadium, when he's giving the terrible speech, which uh, the real speech is lost. I went looking for it to try to hear it, but um, apparently it did take hours for him to get through that speech. Plural? Yep, plural. Hours. Whoa. I'm not sure if maybe it was barely two hours, an hour and a half, and they were just kind of amping things up. I didn't, you know, get to dig too deep, but uh, it was described as uh, quite the ordeal for both Birdie and listeners. (laughs) I can imagine (laughs) so. Just sitting uncomfortably because you feel bad, but you're also like, oh, oh boy. (laughs) Yeah, it's like when you're sitting in class and the one kid that you don't want to, you know, raise his hand (laughs) raises his hand. And instead of the teacher just cutting him off, they just let him keep going on and on and on.
1: Woof. Oh,
0: yeah. Brings me back. Oh, right. but, um, <laughs> But that, again, going back to that 1925 speech scene, when he is walking up the stairs to the stadium, and you just see the... It's from his point of view, right? You see all these people, and you see the microphone up there, and it's imposing. But then when he gets up there, there are more people in front of him that they all stand up at the same time and turn around. And yes. I felt the anxiety in that scene. I was like, oh, this is this terrifying. And they have that a couple of more times throughout the film. But then at the end, when he's delivering his um, speech to, uh, throughout the nation, it's just Lionel in front of him in a small room, smiling. You know, that friend. And I was like, I, I, it was highlighted enough for me to notice, at least.
1: Yeah. And so... This movie also, uh, on that note, does not know if it is a character-focused drama driven around Bertie, mm-hmm. or if it's like a buddy cop movie yeah. with Bertie and Lionel, because there's a lot of those beats oh, yeah. of uh, <laughs> Bertie being like, I no longer require all services, and then he ends up, They they take turns apologizing, it's...
0: And I, I think I noticed that too, especially when they highlight the, the class differences between them. Right. And it, it makes me wonder, cause it makes it feel like there's going to maybe be a bit more with his family compared to Lionel's family, sorry. And Bertie's family and those differences. But at the end of the day, it doesn't really go anywhere. And I'm kind of happy about that because uh, I'm like, i got another class based film. <laughs>
1: like, yes, we get it. It's- this was 2010 the class where it didn't start yet yeah. <laughs> there was one interesting shot of that where when um, Bertie first goes to Lionel's house uh, mm-hmm. and we see him on the couch kind of cross-legged and looking stiff in his suit mm-hmm. and behind him there is just this absolutely disgusting wall yeah. I thought that was that was a neat. Transition, but the more it appeared on screen, the the less that contrast sort of had any kind of impact. And I'm wondering if it's on purpose. Maybe it's supposed to be kind of appalling at
0: first, but then it's just kind of that's the situation. That's what it is type thing, and you get used to it.
1: I could be reading way too much into it, but I don't know. I think you're giving Tom Hooper a lot of credit yeah. <laughs> because at, at the end, so the the color palette is entirely static through everything. It's so yeah. at. At the end of the movie, right after the big speech, mm-hmm. or right before the big speech, mm-hmm. um, the king walks down a corridor mm-hmm. and there's red carpeted walls and everything is bright and everyone stands up and stares at him as he yep. walks into the booth. And then after the speech, we are treated to the same shot, mm-hmm. but now they're just clapping. You know... And
0: that's something I actually wanted to bring up, and um, high-ranking officials like that, they would not have been present for the speeches, and there would not have been people applauding. Really? Yeah. It was, um, from what I saw, it's just you know one of those affairs, the, the royal family, the king is going in, he's going to do a speech, and that's it. Churchill had nothing to do with the speech whatsoever, by the way.
1: Speaking of Churchill, yes. The inclusion of Timothy Spall as Winston Churchill was really weird. It,
0: I think he doesn't need to be on screen at all. He doesn't he does not need to be in the film. If they mentioned Churchill, you know, as being one of the prominent, you know, politicians that were warning against war with Germany, I would have been fine with that. But there's right. that line where um the one prime minister, God, I'm terrible with names and, you know, I have a degree in history. This is bad, but um, <laughs> uh, English history isn't my bread and butter. I try my best. Uh, but he says that only Churchill saw this coming or something to that effect. Yes. I rolled my eyes. I was like, oh my God. And just their inclusion of Churchill, uh, Bertie choosing George the Um, He chose it on his own, by the way, to honor his father's legacy. Not at Churchill's suggestion. No. Uh, Churchill, in fact, tried to convince David to remain as king.
1: That's, that makes it even weirder because mm-hmm. Winston Churchill is a very prominent figure. Everyone knows how he looks. Everyone knows how he talked. Mm-hmm. And having Timothy Spall do a, an impression of it, it immediately took me out of it. Like, okay, <laughs> it... it Honestly, if this was a Saturday Night Live sketch <laughs> where they wanted Winston Churchill to be doing something wacky, they should just get Timothy Spall to do it again because he's really good at making Winston Churchill weird.
0: I agree, and also it was just more like, is that tail? <laughs> 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 right, oh, yeah. we, just saw, we
1: saw Scabbers the rat. <laughs>
0: Which, you know, informs the childhood, and you're just like, hey, it's the rat dude from Harry Potter, you know? (laughs) (laughs) And, listen, I get it. Churchill is a very interesting historical figure, but I think this is um, one of the issues that historical movies have, is that they almost, in a way, they they deify and create this mythology around these figures, and they're not presenting them as who they are, human beings, right? I mean, we do get that with Birdie, thank God. But it's
1: like, I get it. You like Churchill, but just...
0: He's also a pretty problematic and controversial figure.
1: We're not getting a representation. Mm-hmm. We're getting cameos.
0: Yeah. Ap- oh, absolutely. It's like, just bring in Stan Lee next time, you know?
1: <laughs> oh, man, like, oh, who's that in the background? It's Stalin! <laughs> Stalin's here, everyone!
0: Uh, I was I was honestly expecting, you know, Hitler to just walk on screen and go, hey, let's go with that, but... No. Like a
1: dream sequence where Hitler makes fun of Bertie stammer, like "Nah, I can't do this." You know, Hitler's just like my brother, David.
0: Well, it's interesting is that David and Wallace since they were um, they were Nazi sympathizers, so just have that dream sequence of David morphing into Hitler as he's mocking him.
1: Right? It would work. Oh man, uh, I speaking of the Nazis, yes. World War II is just a thing that happens at the end of this movie? Yeah,
0: I think, honestly, I get the, um, I understand why they chose that speech, and mm-hmm. I mean, I listened to the recording of the actual speech, and honestly, they actually kind of play up his stammer in certain bits, but I think that I'm okay with that, it's for dramatic effect, because his actual speech, like, you can hear his pauses, and he takes his time to enunciate but he doesn't do it as slowly as it's presented in the film but i get why they went with world war ii i mean come on hollywood loves world war ii it's a you know it's a great enticing story there's clear good guys there's clear bad guys but uh guess what not in history
1: (laughs) yeah and in this in from an artistic perspective Mm -hmm. the enemy in this movie was george's stammer absolutely And if there was no inclusion of that final speech, Mm -hmm. it would not have harmed the movie. I agree. I was actually kind of
0: expecting them to play up the coronation in a bigger way, because most of the movies focused on him coming to terms and also not coming to terms with being king. Right. And you'd think the coronation... But again... I understand why they went with the speech because it's long, it's drawn out. I personally, I really like the scene. I thought the music choice, Beethoven, was great, it has that yes. slow build up. But um, the coronation was just what did Lionel say? Four easy phrases, you're done, you're king. So I guess that's not as um, interesting for an emotional climax. But I think they could have right. done something else because they stretched out the time frame as well. Um, Birdie and Lionel, they had been friends, I believe, since... Not friends, but they did start meeting in uh, after uh, Wembley in 1925. So you have huh, years of history that are condensed down right right. to the 30s. And I, I understand that, but I think this is one of those cases where you could refocus it. And I think it's one of those difficult things about history is where you are taking a person's life and they did so many, you know important and influential things they were part of all these events that you want to talk about them all but sometimes you shouldn't do that you should just focus on one or two and just kind of narrow it down right so but um yeah i understand that and there's just i don't know it's i think it's a delicate balance to walk
1: right and My issue really is with the fact that during this time, there was, it was a big talk in the town about Hitler Mm -hmm. and what was happening in the rest of Europe. Mm -hmm. And we did not get any of that earlier in the film.
0: No, not, not at all. There was no, you know, I mean, maybe if they showed, like, clips of somebody walking by in, like, the palace or somewhere else you know, when you hear radio announcements or newspapers or just something, right, to give that
1: build-up, right. then it would have worked, but it wasn't there. and yeah. Or do something with the score or the imagery to start putting that anxiety together. Mm-hmm. Instead, in most of the movie, everything is about George VI and how what his childhood was like and his relationships mm-hmm. and him growing as a person. Mm-hmm. We... Flip a switch after the coronation Yeah, from it being a personal story about George to it being about World War II now. Yeah. And I think we would have found a much better experience if it was one or the other. If it ended at the coronation, after the emotional height of the film with George um, yelling at Lionel... Mm-hmm. If the coronation had gone well and everything was very regal, and you know, Colin Firth sits up a little bit straighter and has his confidence as king, and then we have just words appearing about the speeches, mm-hmm. that would be good. Yeah, absolutely. If we had permeating through the entire movie, uh just glimpses back to Europe and the rise of Hitler, mm-hmm. and contrasting that with Bertie being quiet mm-hmm. and Sad. Like, if we have cutaways to Hitler speeches Mm -hmm. and cutaways to, like, news clippings, I don't know, not like the spinny newspaper on a black screen thing, but things that show the Mm -hmm. strength and confidence of Hitler, and then cut to Bertie stammering.
0: Yeah, instead, what they did was, they did that... Exact thing, but they forced it into one quick scene when they're watching the video of the coronation, right? Exactly. I, I'm not going to lie. I kind of rolled my eyes. And he says, uh, Elizabeth asks him, you know, oh, what's he saying? I was like, I don't know,
1: but he seems to be saying it rather well. I was like, ah. Uh, yeah. Okay. And that that really is the kind of the point mm-hmm. where they mark, okay, the new movie starts.
0: Yep. Except that new movie is... 20 minutes <laughs> yes exactly honestly I think they could have um, they should have definitely explored more of the you know the upbringing of George and when they it's a huge point about it right and so when it comes to the abuse of George the sixth uh, I think they very very lightly touched upon the possible sexual abuse uh, there's nothing really? concrete yes yeah it's something that's still developing. again I'm not an expert on the subject I I've done as best research as I can, um, but from what I've noticed is that it's something that historians are not going to all come out and say, oh, absolutely it happened, but it's one of those things where they're saying, well, it is a possibility and I think new discoveries are being made, but when it's about the father of the current Queen of England, I'm sure that information is going to be probably a little difficult to find. And I don't think the
1: firm will ever kind of
0: give that up. <laughs> Absolutely. I really liked that focus on um, just the difficulties of being a part of their royal family. I thought it was, it was interesting. It's something that I think people are at least somewhat familiar with, or they can kind of piece together themselves. But, I mean, you really see, like, Bertie, he is committing to these royal duties because he has to, but you can see that it's destroying him in ways, right?
1: Right, and it was rather interesting to see this um, during what's currently going on with the royal family. Mm. <laughs> uh, as of this recording, uh, Prince Harry has left the royal family, mm-hmm. and when Bertie says the line "We're not a family, we're a firm," mm-hmm. I, th- I thought that was that was kind of interesting. Yeah. Um, sense of duty and whatnot. I in those scenes I did think of um Harry and Megan a lot. So I guess on a whole the highs need to be higher, mm-hmm. the lows need to be lower, mm-hmm. and there needs to be more here. But the performance of Colin Firth mm-hmm. was incredible. I don't oh, know yeah. who his vocal coach was, but his mispronunciations of words mm-hmm. and some of his cadences yes. for the King's speech patterns were perfect.
0: Especially, I think, even when, like, I think that even the sound editing could be attributed to that. Like, hearing, I think, just the stress in his throat as he's trying to just spit out a word. Right. Like, it, it seems painful.
1: <laughs> yeah, and there, there's some fun uh, diagenic and non-diagenic sound mm-hmm. all through this movie, uh, particularly... During the first session with Lionel, when uh, George is reading from Hamlet uh, or Macbeth, and he puts no, on you're a right. headphones, you're right. It was Hamlet. <laughs> oh, it was Hamlet. Okay. Yes. <laughs> and Lionel starts to turn up the volume. Yes. And the music goes from being diegetic, happening in in the scene, the King's ears. Yeah. To being the score of the scene. Yes. And I thought that was a, a fun transition.
0: I I definitely like, you know, holding the microphone in front of his mouth so you can't see, you know, try to see if he's stammering or not. It's, it's one of those things where you know, you know, obviously he's probably reading it flawlessly. But right. I think it makes the reveal later on so much... I think it, it hits home a little bit harder. Because he's listening to that, you know, by himself. He's frustrated. It was, I believe it was after... Um, the talk with his father, especially when his father's just berating him, like spit it out, boy, you know, right. the stress of him at having to actually do more of these speeches and be more of a public speaker. And then finally, you know, birdie's all angry and he's like, you know, I'll prove him wrong type thing flawlessly. And he listens to it and you start to see, you know, hope spread across his face. And then you see his wife behind him
1: too. It's yeah. Yeah. Played, interestingly, by Helena common carter
0: I, I really enjoyed her performance. I thought she and Colin Firth actually had a pretty good uh, chemistry
1: together. Yeah, she did well, mm-hmm. but Character in this era, much. I guess women also wore very heavy eye makeup. Yeah. <laughs> she She's an interesting actress to see on screen in roles that are not from Tim Burton.
0: Yeah, I mean, her role in Harry Potter might as well have been just separately directed by... Tim Burton, but <laughs> right.
1: Did you know that she is ac- the Bonham Carter family is actually a significant family in England? Really? Yeah, uh, dating back to like the the eighteen hundreds, there was um, a pretty high up British government official uh-huh. who was from the Bonham Carter family, huh. and they have a whole family tree of it on Wikipedia.
0: Oh wow, that I did not know that. That's. I I guess I shouldn't be surprised. Bonham Carter. It does sound pretty regal, but. Right. Huh.
1: Um, So, in a way, it was fitting that she was in the movie. (laughs) She had to be. Exactly. Well, she literally had to be. Like, she would have had people killed. It was terrible.
0: Uh, Contractually, you know. Contractually (laughs) obligated to. Jeez. Spit out words. Spit it out, boy! Ah, there you go. (laughs) Um, I actually did want to talk about David a little bit more. Okay. Um, The brother? Yeah. So... They first off, Guy Pearce does a really good job of playing a tool, because <laughs> David was just so uh, annoying in this film. He was unbearable, right? But what's interesting is the scene where, so historically, he was not known to be well liked by the establishment. He was reckless. He shirked off duties, and then obviously his whole affair with Wallace. And um, but I'm using the fact that he and uh, Wallace were Nazi sympathizers, so. I think right. it's safe for me to say that they were probably bad
1: people. <laughs> um, I did not know that Wallace was her first name.
0: Yes, it's. I I did not either, and I remember I was watching the film, and um, with a friend. It wasn't. It wasn't recently for the podcast, but it was before, and we were wondering about you know the accuracy of how Wallace was portrayed, and right. you know American socialite. And I said, well, it's probably accurate, but. Um I'm not sure if it's one of those cases where, you know, the royal family and the media kind of just attack this person because she's pretty quiet, but I'm just going to go with the Nazi sympathizer thing to base my opinion off of it because I mean, <laughs> come on.
1: <laughs> right. Uh,
0: but the scene where David cries on his mother's shoulder and it's extremely awkward? Yes, did not happen in real life. In fact, um it Some consider it could be a reference because when Birdie finds out he has to be king, he actually cries on his mother's shoulder. Oh. And I just... I don't know. I thought that the scene with David was a way to kind of show him to be this... Because he's crying not because his father's, you know, dead, but he's crying because he's trapped, right? He can't marry Wallace, all these other things, and it shows him to be this selfish person, and... But just the fact that, you know... I kind of took problem with um, portraying his crying as a weakness, you know? And I took problem with it only because, you know, one, if you got to cry, you got to cry. There's no issue with that. But I right. think later on it works because it's in the context of being king and it shows these expectations, how you're supposed to act, right? Stoic, non-emotional which is the same thing. I just repeated myself. But <laughs> but then you get later in the scene, Bertie is crying on his wife's shoulder, and I think it's a more it would be a more poignant moment than him crying on his mother's shoulder because you're like, "Oh, she's back." Okay. We don't have, you know, decades of experience with his family, you know, to make that scene to make that would be scene impactful if it was his mother, if that makes any sense.
1: Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. Um <laughs> So, you're right, Guy Pierce does make a good tool, <laughs> but I don't know. I am conflicted on, from a cinematic perspective, how all of that went down. Okay, now I'm interested. So... What do you got? I could not tell if Bertie wanted to be king mm-hmm. when his brother was king. Yeah. Because... The scene where he and Lionel are walking around Mm -hmm. and Bertie accuses him of treason (laughs) for suggesting that he would be a good king. Yeah. It it was all handled very strangely. Mm -hmm. Because that's contrasted with Bertie yelling at his brother Mm -hmm. for being a shit king and his brother suggesting that Bertie was trying to dethrone him.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I think historically, Birdie, he wanted his brother to just step up to the plate, be the king, do his job. But he knew that his brother was not going to do that, and he didn't right. want to be king. But he faced the real possibility that he might. And in fact, um, he it, he does become king eventually, right? And I think it's just a case of the differences between Birdie and David. David does not have a work ethic; he does not care. Birdie does. But I agree, it's handled, I think, pretty strangely in the film. And I think without some of the historical context, it doesn't make as much sense.
1: Right. And I went into this with virtually zero historical context. Uh, Yeah, absolutely.
0: And I, you know, coming back to this film, doing some, you know, surface level research, you know, find out some more, have talking points. A lot of things made more sense, but... Yeah, it's just one of those instances where it's it's a confused film, you know, as you said before.
1: And I think that is just because Tom Hooper is not a good filmmaker. What do you mean? I mean, let's see,
0: <laughs> cats, you know,
1: cats, uh, Les Mis.
0: <laughs> oh, Les Mis, is, I I cannot get through Les Mis. He. Um. He did, he had a part in John Adams, and I don't know how much of a part in it, but John Adams is, I enjoyed it. It was, you know, good. I don't think I'm ever going to watch it again, but again, that entire miniseries was carried by Paul Giamatti's performance as
1: John Adams. I think whoever does the casting for Tom Hooper movies (laughs) should have won the Oscar. (laughs) Because all of his movies Mm. are terrible, but with good performances.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, even the writing itself is just rather bland. It's like, I don't know. It reminded me, I was going to say, you know, about the color palette. Like, it reminds you of like an Earl Grey tea. Right. (laughs) Exactly. You know? Oh, man. (laughs) And I know, I was (laughs) afraid to say that. This film
1: should just be the audio of the movie, but with a still image of a cup of tea slowly (laughs) steeping. And it would have, honestly, the same effect. And one person is just comes in, you just you
0: don't even see the person, you just see a hand slowly stirring, like turning a spoon,
1: you know? No 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 no. When when the cup is done steeping, you just see Hitler come in and take a sip. <laughs> and, and that is the conclusion of the film.
0: Do you have something to say? But tea, you know? <laughs> <laughs> oh uh, man. And I do like Earl Grey tea. I'm not I don't want to offend any tea people out there.
1: See, I'm more of a fan of chai. I do
0: like chai as well, but I do. I see the appeal of Earl Grey as well. Sometimes it's nice to just drink nothing, you know? But drink something. (laughs) Drink nothing. That's what it's like. It's, you know, you just. It's like eating a piece of chicken that you didn't season, you know? You just (laughs) throw some salt on it, you bake it, and it's. It doesn't have any flavor. It's just. It's a void, you know? You're just eating to eat. You need to fill your stomach, and sometimes it works.
1: (laughs) Thanks for listening to our tea podcast,
0: everybody. (laughs) Um. I'm trying to go over some more talking points. We went over a lot. I think um you know, Margaret and Elizabeth aren't really in it too much. It's more of they're more there to show, you know, that Bertie is a fa- you know, family
1: figure as well. Yeah, I had no problem with the inclusion of Elizabeth. No. I do have a problem with the inclusion of the line your daughter Elizabeth would be next in line. <laughs> yeah, that was
0: Shut up. <laughs> we we know. Just assume that the audience is somewhat intelligent because guess what? The audience actually is right. Like we understand how
1: succession works.
0: And even if, if not, if somebody doesn't know, does it really add anything to the scene except more of like, you know, just kind of turning around and winking at the camera, you know, like,
1: right. Like then she'd be queen Elizabeth. (laughs) Uh, Yeah.
0: It's, I mean, I think I do, one of the things I do like about the movie is that it's, you know, it's not, they could have went from just purely the point of view of Lionel Logue, right? This common, you know, Australian living in England, and he gets caught up and becomes a speech therapist to the future king, right? Right. They could have very much did that, but instead, the main character and the focus is on Bertie. They make the king a relatable character. Not to say that, you know, Lionel isn't relatable, he's obviously way more relatable from the get-go right Yes. but they did they did a good job they didn't focus too much on just the surface level aspect of you know he's a monarch he's rich all these things they were showing a lot of the struggles to be internal and personal and i think a lot of people can relate to that and i think that's honestly the only way you can really go with it because we're not kings at least as far as i know
1: as far as you know. Yeah, that's what he is. You ever see The Princess Diaries? <laughs> anyway. I think this movie does not succeed in informing people of the times. This movie yes. does succeed in giving an insight into King George the mm-hmm. Sixth, But we lose the bigger story. And what's interesting, too, is that...
0: You know how Birdie has those anger issues throughout the movies? mm mm-hmm. Well... What's interesting is that looking through, um, I was looking through, somebody made notes. Uh, there is a uh, memoir. Uh, it was actually written by this one of the sons of Lionel, and it's called The King's Speech, based on the recently discovered diaries of Lionel Logue. And in those diaries, Lionel doesn't, he never mentions any anger or rage. Uh, he only mentions like extreme frustration, which is pretty typical for somebody in his position. Um, but, you know, they actually also... Heavily discussed his upbringing problems with his tutors, nannies, and his father pretty early on in their relationship. So it seems to me that in real life, you know, King George the Sixth was like, "I am seeking out this person's services. He is here to help me. I'm going to work as best as I can to meet him halfway, and we're gonna, you know, get this done." Type thing, like a normal right. human being. And I get, I, I get why they changed it for the film because you don't want this, you know, emotional dumping. Like right within the first twenty minutes, because you are like, oh, "Oh, hang on."
1: Yeah, I think, it's, and that yeah. resistance—that yes. resistance—is an important part of character building. Absolutely, um, you know, you have to and, establish trust. And that's that's the first beat in everybody cop movie. <laughs> 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 I'm just saying, I w- the king has the power to give him a badge, and then they could both be just cops, and this could be this could go a wild direction.
0: Yeah, and in the end. Barty didn't knight him He gave him another Extremely high You know Order What was it The Victorian order I believe There's a lot of orders I'm not sure
1: (laughs) There's so much
0: It was It was the highest It was because It was um, Personal To the monarch itself It wasn't like You know For the country As a whole Type thing But he, He literally said I don't know how to thank you Lionel said knighthood It didn't happen I'm just saying That really No I don't think he was knighted huh i'm pretty sure they would have mentioned that with the end text if lionel asked to be knighted he did it as a joke right before the final speech because Bertie says you know however this thing shakes out or goes whatever he says i just wanted to thank you and i don't know or he says i don't know how i could thank you and then lionel you know very wittingly says knighthood (laughs) which his one-liners were pretty good i i found myself chuckling at them so
1: yeah I missed that line at the end, but I do recall him uh, saying earlier, Mm -hmm. arguing with Bertie about how his other doctors don't know what they're talking about. Yeah. And he said that many of them have been knighted.
0: Yep. Makes it official. (laughs) Right. Also, can we talk about that doctor in the beginning and how stupid it was?
1: The marble thing? The
0: marble thing and the cigarettes and everything like that. Historically, I don't know, you know, if that would ever be the case I get why they're doing it kind of showing like oh (laughs) different times shows what we knew right but it's also like it's it's not being portrayed as in like this is this is really what these people believed back then because they they didn't know right they didn't have the research it wasn't developed as much and I think it's a little disingenuous to make fun of that because there are going to be beliefs that we hold nowadays that within 100 years or even less time People are going to look back and be like, huh, you believe that? Right. And I get why they did it, because they're setting up Lionel and everything, but it just seems cheap, if that makes sense.
1: It does. Um, and I think that scene was just showing that Lionel had been trying and had been failing. Mm-hmm. And they decided to add, um, you know, the bits about ancient Greece just to drive the point home.
0: Yeah. Do you mean show Birdie trying and failing? Yes. Oh, sorry. Yes. No, no, you're fine. I just wanted to clarify. And it was, you know, it wasn't too much of an issue. But also, um, the whole stammering thing, historically, it does make sense for them to believe that it was developed or it was brought on by something. But I do know, um, scientifically, it has been disproven in recent years that it is something that people are born with. I'm Interesting. Not, I'm not 100% sure on that, but that is what I found out. I don't think I have... Um, too much grievance with that, because that's something people can easily, you know, research and find out themselves, but... I don't know, part of me, you know, is like, when it comes to these certain themes and beliefs that are way off-base and misrepresented, it makes me wonder, like, should these movies at the end have, you know, with that title screen, with, like, the text on it, explaining what happens afterwards, should there be a screen that kind of says, you know, although historically... It was, you know, believed that, you know, stammering was developed and not, you know, something you were born with. But scientifically, this has been disproven. Like, should movies have
1: stuff like that or is it not even worth it? You know, I I don't know. There would be so many bumpers on so many movies. Yes. If that were the case.
0: Absolutely. So I think it's just one of those things where people need to realize this is a movie. This is not primary source document,
1: right? Right. I think the idea should be more about crystallizing emotion rather than conveying fact. Absolutely. And I think the King's Speech does a good job of that from a personal perspective mm-hmm. from the King.
0: Absolutely. And I think, as we said before, you know, we like historical movies because they are able to, you know, pull these emotional aspects that wouldn't otherwise be represented in other historical methods, right? Right. So I uh, I think that's all we can really say about the King speech, if you have anything more to add.
1: No, that's that just about covers everything I had.
0: All right, perfect. And um, yeah, I mean, what we said in the beginning, what we just said now is really what the podcast is going to do. We're going to explore those emotional happenings, and you're going to hear a lot of uh, interesting opinions from both Vince and I. Yeah. <laughs> 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 should, Indeed. Should we reveal what our next movie is or should we uh keep it a secret? We
1: absolutely should.
0: Alright. Well, next time we are going to be examining the Tom Cruise film The Last Samurai. <laughs> Woo!
1: I am hyped about this. This uh, is my favorite movie. I know <laughs> everything I know about feudal Japan because of it.
0: Oh, I I am extremely excited. It's uh, it's it's pretty close to my wheelhouse, so <laughs> Oh, this is gonna be woof either a very controversial or greatly received episode. but first, It'll be
1: perfect. Don't worry about
0: it. Oh, it'll be. Indeed. Well, uh, thank you everyone for listening, and we will see you next time.